0: I'm going to invite you to uh, open your Bibles to Matthew 18. We are in Matthew 18 this morning. Uh, you can, uh, I like a, a regular good old-fashioned Bible, but if you want to bring it up on your phone, um, you can do that. Some of you, I know, uh, have tablets. Uh, that's awesome, too. But we are in Matthew 18, uh, beginning with verse 1. If you follow uh, the church liturgical calendar... Uh, today is the first Sunday in Epiphany. How many of you knew that today is the first Sunday in Epiphany? Any of any, Okay, a couple of you guys. So we got a couple uh, church calendar nerds here. Awesome. Uh, me too. Uh, I like to follow the church liturgical calendar. And Epiphany, the first Sunday in Epiphany, it's this idea, it's a festival in the life of the church where uh, we celebrate the manifestation of Jesus Christ through the Magi. And how God has come to made, make himself known, not just to the Jewish people, but also to the Gentiles, all of us who are not Jewish. And that's what epiphany is all about. Now we use this word epiphany in our colloquial language, in our everyday language, and we, we talk about things like, I had a, an epiphany. Well, we kind of had this aha moment. We had this, this revelation, this, this uh, oh, I I just got this big idea, or something all of a sudden occurred to me. And that certainly is a manifestation, uh, 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 this idea all of a sudden has come to me, this this revelation, this new idea. And the new idea that we've been going through, uh, through the season of Advent, through the season of Christmas, and now the season of Epiphany, is that when Jesus came into the world, he changed everything. And oftentimes as we go through life, everything is just so normal for us. The the ways in which we live our our lives, things are just common to us that we don't even necessarily connect the dots in terms of how when Jesus came into the world, he not only changed our relationship with God and, and made a bridge, made a way for us to be in relationship with God, but he also changed our culture he changed our society. He hasn't changed the entire world. And I think oftentimes we don't acknowledge those changes. These are significant revelations that Jesus has brought about in the world. And so I thought we would take a couple weeks uh, during the season of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany to really look at some of these changes and how Jesus has changed everything. So we've looked at education We looked at healing and hospitals. We've looked at political power, government. Last week, we looked at slavery and freedom and all the ways in which Jesus, and then later on, his followers, have changed the world. This past week, uh, I read an article uh, by a guy by the name of Pascal Gobry, and he is a fellow at the Center for Ethics and Public Policy In Washington, D.C., and he wrote an article called How Christianity Invented Children. How Christianity Invented Children. And you might be thinking to yourselves, okay, now you're pushing it a little bit far. Right? I can see these changes uh, with these other areas, but come on. How Christianity Invented Children. We look at children, we look at pictures of children, we think, "Oh, they're so wonderful. They're so sweet. They're so innocent." And they make our hearts just kind of filled with joy just actually mostly looking at pictures, right? In reality, it's it's a little bit different story. But I want to invite you for the next few minutes to just kind of lean in and be open to this idea that truly Even Jesus invented children and how Jesus has changed our worldview, not just for children, but for the most vulnerable in our society. All right, we're going to be in Matthew 18. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day that you've given to us and an opportunity, Lord, to worship you, to serve you. To reflect on your word, God, and just to be reminded again how you came into the world and changed everything. So Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, "'Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' Now, this is kind of an interesting question because people in their day and time, in ancient times, in the first century, and in the region that we know of today as, as Israel, they knew who the greatest person was. In their worldview, they are all thinking in concentric circles. And so in concentric circles, in the very middle, the most important, the greatest person of their day was Caesar. Caesar. The guy who was ruling and reigning in Rome, he was the most powerful people. And so as the disciples are thinking about this, this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, they want to know if they're going to move into, along with Jesus, into the, into the inner circle, if you will. So the next circle out are going to be the, the, the local leaders or the regional leaders uh, we might think of as governors uh, today in our own society. And that, of course, would be people like Herod or Pontius Pilate. And, and so they were important people. They weren't the top dog in the middle, but they were really important politically as well because they had lots of power. Then the next circle out are going to be the religious leaders the local, the real, like, I'll just say the mayors and the city council people. But in their day, it was the religious people, people, the priests and, and the Sanhedrin, the people who uh, people went to when they needed to know things. And then in the next circle out, we're going to be what we would call the freemen, men who had freedom. They were probably Roman citizens. And they had then because they were free, they had a certain level, actually quite a bit of power. And then as you moved further outside the circle, uh, you would get to the people who were, I'll just say, less important uh, and less great in their day. And that would be people like the foreigners. That would be people like uh, uh, the, the slaves, people who were not free. It would be people like women. They're further down and it would most definitely include children. And so when Jesus speaks and has this conversation with the disciples on that day, he said they say to him, "Jesus, who, you know, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" This is the worldview and the mindset that the disciples bring to the conversation and they bring to Jesus. In Jesus' day and time, children had little to almost no value. You could walk up to a person on the street or you could walk up to a wealthy person and say, hey, tell me about children. And they would describe children like this, weak, helpless, dependent, fragile, vulnerable, passive, fearful, needy, at risk. I mean, there's not a lot of love there, right? And you're probably thinking, well, that sounds about accurate, right? It's not necessarily a wrong list. We would probably consider it an incomplete list. But that's their worldview. That's how they understood children in their day and time. They were the most vulnerable people in society because kids got sick and kids died in their day. And so they were very low, and they were not really valued much at all. The Greek philosopher Plato, this is how he described children. Children are a mob of motley appetites, pains, and pleasures. I don't know if Plato had kids or not, but that's, that's a little brutal, I think we can agree. A Motley, a motley appetites. Um, the Roman writer Pliny the Elder, this is what he said about kids. None among all the animals are so prone to tears. So he actually talks about children using the, the language of animals. I also ran across a book this week uh, written by a hist- historian, a guy by the name of Magni Baki, and uh, he's uh, from uh, Scandinavia. But the book is written in English, and the, and the book is entitled When Children Became People. And the subtitle is The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. And in his book, this is what the historian Baki writes, in ancient Greece and Rome, children were considered non-persons. They were considered non-persons. In fact, if you look at the word child in either the Greek language or in Latin, child literally means one who doesn't speak. And that's how they viewed children in their day and time. Now, I think a lot of this has to do, frankly, with mortality rates. And so what I want to do is give you some uh, idea of what what it was like in ancient times. So uh, first, let's start with today. When we look at mortality rates in the 21st century, globally, about 2.9% of every person who uh, is born globally today, 2.9% die. That's the mortality rate today globally. In the United States, it's less than 1%. So when, when a child is born in America or in the world today, we have a pretty good confidence, right, that that child is going to at least hit their first birth, birthday. In the first century when Jesus was living, 27% infant mortality rate that children would die. Today, 15 years old, 21st century, 4.6% globally of children die today. They, make it to their, they don't make it to their 15th birthday. 4.6%. Again, the numbers are much, much lower in the United States and in the industrialized world. In ancient times, when Jesus lived, 47% of children did not make their 15th birthday. So to kind of sum this up, If you lived in the first century, about a quarter of you would not live to your first birthday, and about a half of you would not live to be 15 years old. And I think that kind of helps us to understand why, what their, their worldview and their understanding of children, and frankly, their reluctance to really connect with those children or understand maybe children the way that we understand uh, children. The Greek uh, philosopher who was almost a contemporary of Jesus, a guy by the name of Plutarch, this is what he wrote. Children are more like a plant than a human being. See, they understood children very, very differently than we do today, because there was so much uncertainty, so much sickness, so much disease. And until they hit about 15 years old, until they came of age, this is just how they were viewed in their societies. Even well-to-do people in ancient times, they were not particularly connected with their kids. Even wealthy people mostly had the slaves take care of the kids. There was not this warm and loving relationship like uh, so many of us have with our kids today. And furthermore, by law, fathers had a right to terminate the life of anyone in their family who was under the age of 15 before they've become of age. So dads had lots and lots of power if their child was not misbehaving or they felt like something was wrong, they could legally kill their child according to Roman law. Now, of course, they didn't oftentimes do this. They may have felt like it. Maybe you felt like it as you've been raising kids as well. But often in the first days of life when a child was born, there was kind of this period of about eight days where everyone was looking at the father because it was in that time that they could decide whether to keep the child or to get rid of the child. They actually had a term for this. It's called expositio. Expositio. And it means exposure. And so when a child was born, the father had a decision to make. Keep the child or... If the child looked weak, if the child looked sickly, if the child looked deformed, if the child looked like it had any disability, you would take the child out and expose that child to the elements. Kind of harsh. This is how they did it in ancient times. They would take the child out into the woods. Sometimes they would take the child to the local dump. True. True. They were more compassionate. They would take the child down to the river and just drown it. Put it out of its misery, as so they thought. There were very practical reasons for this in their minds in ancient times. Because a child who was sick, a child who could not eventually contribute to the economic life of the family was just another mouth to feed. It would be a strain and a drain on the family. The child would be considered a drain on the community and the society, Rome had laws that if you had a a child with a disability, if it was deformed, that you were to get rid of it really fast. This is just how things were in ancient times as Jesus came along. Sometimes a child was born out of wedlock. And how do you deal with all that? Exposure. You would get rid of that child. Even girls If you didn't want a girl baby, that was enough reason in ancient times to just get rid of that child. And most certainly, those children who are weak and disabled, it was not a question. You just took that child out into the woods or down to the river. In ancient times, children were considered weak, helpless, passive, dependent. I mean, there's just almost nothing positive about children in ancient times for all the reasons I've just mentioned. So the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to them, to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble such things must come but woe to the person through whom they come if your hand or foot causes you to stumble cut it off and throw it away it is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and then be thrown into eternal fire And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter eternal life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So when Jesus brings a child over to sit on his lap or be close by and, and use this child as, as a demonstration of, of what it means to be great. Everyone was shocked. Everyone was like, what in the world is he talking about? This makes no sense. Children are not great. Children are supposed to grow up and become adults. And Jesus says, no, it's actually the opposite. The adults, you disciples, need to become like children. Nobody in ancient times used a child as a positive sermon illustration. No Jewish rabbi would do this. This was absolutely scandalous for him to lift up and use a child as someone who is so precious and important. The British theologian, uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, this is what he writes about this this idea with children. The elevation of the dignity of child would have made no sense to the ancients. It came into the world through Jesus. The pagan world as such would not have understood Understood any such thing as a serious suggestion that a child is higher and holier than a man. And I can about imagine the disciples are thinking to themselves, he must have misspoke. We didn't hear him right. But a few verses later, Jesus talks more about children. He says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Over and over throughout the New Testament, we read how Jesus has this remarkably compassionate, special place in his heart for children. Jesus never became a friend of Rome. Jesus was a friend of sinners, of the ordinary, of the common people. Jesus was a friend to the cripple, the lepers, the blind, the beggars, the prostitutes, to women, and to children. This is the Jesus we read about over and over throughout the New Testament. It's such a different way, and it ran so counter to their culture the day. And Jesus really based this idea around loving children and loving all people, especially the most vulnerable, around this this theological idea that we call imago Dei, that all people are created in the image of God. That you and I don't have value in and of ourselves or by what we do. You and I have value in our lives because we are made in the image of God. That's why we're we're loved. That's why we're special. That's why we're important to Jesus. That's why we're important to this world. Not because of anything you do, and not because of your resume, not because of anything you accomplish, but simply because you were created in the image of God. And this was a really difficult idea for people to get their minds around. Because Jesus said, even the children, the most vulnerable are special in the eyes of God. All people are special in the eyes of God. And so as Jesus taught this over and over throughout the New Testament, we see story after story of how the disciples and then the early church began to latch on to and embrace and, and lean into this idea that, that we are made in the image of God, this amago dei, that all of us have value, that all of us are important Because God made us. God created us. We are his children. And simply by that relationship, we are important. And so as this went on throughout church history, in the fourth century, Christianity became legal and there was a, a bishop, a guy by the name of Ambrose, this is what he said. The church must not only care for babies. Again, just couple hundred years later, think about how how much things had already changed. Ambrose writes, the church must not only care for babies, but for also the poor, because poverty often destroys their ability to care for children. So this idea that we need to not only care for, for children, but for all children. And so what people began to do Instead of taking their children who were, were maybe the wrong gender, who were maybe disabled, who were maybe weak, who were maybe sickly, instead of taking them out to the forest or down to the river or to the city dump, they would take them to the local churches and drop them off in front. Or they would take them to a monastery where there were a group of Christians gathered together. This, of course, became the very first orphanages in the world because they knew that the Christians would take care of them and raise them regardless of how sick they were or how disabled they were or what if they were the wrong gender. This is how all this began, of caring for and loving children, this idea of Imago Dei. So I just want to put these two pictures up here for you again. When we think about children, we think about cute, happy, fun, energetic, active, hopeful, inspiring, wonderful. First century, they thought about children as weak, helpless, dependent, fragile, vulnerable, passive, fearful, needy, and at risk. I mean, these are two very different worldviews of how we understand children. How did this happen? How did we get to where we are today, where we, we look at a picture of children, a group of kids, and our hearts just like, "Ah, gets so warm." How'd this happen? It's a rabbi in the first century. He came on the scene. They were talking about greatness and who's really important in society. He said, guys, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I think we can argue that Jesus invented children, certainly as we understand children today and how valuable and how important they are. So what do we do with this message What do we do with this idea that kids are important, that Jesus has come into the world and he's changed everything, and how we understand our children? I think the first thing we can do is just be grateful. Just thank God for your kids. Thank God for your grandkids. Thank God for all the, the problems in their lives. And yet you, I bet you n- none of you ever thought about just dropping off your kid and exposing them out into the elements, just ditching them and getting rid of them. I mean, this would just never occur to us because we love them. They're wonderful. They, they drive us crazy, but we love them. And this idea has come from Jesus that they are in the image of God. So just be grateful. Number two, tell them. Tell them that they are children of God. Tell them how important they are. Tell your kids and tell your grandkids. When our kids were little, um, we sang to them all the time. And we sang to them, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. You know this song? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That song was never sung before Jesus showed up on the scene. But we need to be singing that to our kids over and over that not only do they matter to you, but their lives matter to Jesus. Thank God for your kids. Tell your kids how much Jesus loves them. But then number three, as Jesus followers, we need to be advocates for our kids today. Advocates to love them and share life with them, all of life, from womb to tomb. Did you know that exposiatio still exists today? We still get rid of kids. We get rid of kids that we think are undesirable. That's just a whole cold hard truth. Now we don't take them down to the river, we don't take them to the dump, we don't just drop them off somewhere. But we terminate pregnancy. And let me just give you one example. Today, because of our medical science, we can test for Down syndrome a mother who is pregnant with a child. In an America today, 67% of those pregnancies end with the termination of the pregnancy because the mother found out that that child has Down syndrome In France, it's 77%. In Denmark, 98%. And this is what I think is crazy. In Iceland, 99.99% of all pregnancies where the mom has discovered that this child is going to be born with Down syndrome, they terminate the pregnancy. If you go to Iceland today, you will see almost no children or people with Down syndrome. And frankly, the articles I read about this, the only reason why they do have kids that are born, this tiny fraction, is because they missed it. The science didn't pick up on it. So it's nearly 100%. And one of the articles I read about this idea of Down syndrome termination rates, the article was entitled, Is This the Society in Which We Want to Live?, Folks, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, I think the answer is no. We are called to love all people. We are called to love children. We are called to love the most vulnerable people in our society. This is what Jesus did. He invented it. Because when he came into the world... He changed everything. And he has invited us, along with the church, to be advocates, even for the children. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who has made us in your image. That you are a God who has come into the world and made us an opportunity to be in relationship with you. That you are a God who loves every single person on this planet, regardless of their disability, regardless of their capability, regardless of their... Anything, God, that we put labels on or put in boxes, you love us all. And So, God, we pray for the children. We pray for those who are most vulnerable. We pray, God, for those who don't have what we have. And so, God, awaken us from our complacency. As Jeff said this morning, open our eyes to see the ways around us which you are calling us to love all people. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.